0: This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is Resisting a Distracted State of Mind. In the first half, Ryan Holmes shares his address, The Truth of All Things. Then in the second half, Amy Peterson Jensen speaks on Some Hopeful Words on Media and Agency.
1: When I was 10 or 11 years old, My twin brother and I went on a hike up this mountain to the east of us here, the one just north of Y Mountain. Together with a few friends, we woke up early and climbed straight up the face, then scampered across the top to the peak overlooking Rock Canyon. On our way back, we ran into a small rattlesnake. Being the excitable kids we were, we surrounded the poor creature and wouldn't let it escape. We became so bold as to pick it up by the tail as it would try to slither away. We'd hold it for a second or two and then drop it when our nerves gave in. The potential deadly consequence of our actions didn't deter us from our foolishness. When we got home, my mother asked me if everything went okay on the hike. I mumbled something about a rattlesnake. She then related to me that about the same time that we had been fooling around with this snake, she had received a strong impression that we were in danger She had knelt and prayed for us. I was astonished. How did she know that we were in trouble? This is my earliest recollection of what would become many experiences where my mother received specific inspiration from the Holy Ghost in the very moment she needed it. At the time, it seemed mysterious to me, this idea of the companionship of the Holy Ghost. I wondered how it really worked. I understood that the Holy Ghost— is a personage of spirit and puzzled over how he could be helping everyone at once. Years later, during my freshman year at BYU, I found myself in a Physics 122 class. This particular day we were discussing the theoretical limit of the speed of light, about 300 million meters per second. That's over 670 million miles per hour for the non-physics majors. It's the maximum speed at which all energy, matter, and information in the universe can travel. Then the professor paused and said, but we know of something faster, the speed of prayer. He reasoned that if God has a body as tangible as man's, then he occupies a discrete place in the universe, and we believe we can instantaneously communicate with him. So there must be something faster than the speed of light. Again, I found myself reflecting upon the nature of the power of the Holy Ghost. Keep in mind, this was 1985, so there was no internet. There were no smartphones or wireless networks that convey data all over the world to millions of people simultaneously in a matter of seconds. Today, with our current experience, it doesn't even stretch our minds to imagine technology that is capable of instantaneous and personalized messages to millions even billions of people at the same time. I'd like to discuss today just a few of the things that I have learned since my youth about the power of the Holy Ghost and the nature of truth. Obviously, this won't be a complete treatise on the Holy Ghost, but a personal reflection. I humbly add my testimony to that of Moroni, who declared in Moroni 10.5, and by the power of the Holy Ghost, ye may know the truth of all things. I probably quoted this scripture a thousand times as a missionary and mostly thought of it in the context of knowing the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon. But this last part of Moroni's promise is a very compelling statement that opens up a world of possibilities. How do we enable the revelatory power of the Holy Ghost? What kind of truth does the Holy Ghost reveal? What exactly is included in all things? Our world is now filling up with smartphones, smart TVs, smart cars, and smart appliances, and coming soon, smart glasses, watches, and clothing. This connected technology is adaptive and dynamic and is becoming ever-present. Websites, apps, and mobile devices track your every move, every click, every piece of content you look at, How long you engage with it, your location, and just about anything and everything else is recorded. This information is sent to massive data centers and is used to predict and then influence your future behavior. The trend toward more personal technological integration is increasing and will yield technology in the future that will be as startling to you as the smartphone is to your grandparents. It's amazing and alarming at the same time. But as impressive as modern technology is, we have access to a celestial communication network that is infinitely more pure and capable than man's smartest technology. It has unlimited bandwidth, is infinitely fast, is personalized to every soul and has no societal or personal downside. You can listen to me today And I'll say a few things that you would most likely forget. But through the power of the Holy Ghost, you can receive a message that is specifically for you. The message is not based upon your past behavior or your preferences, but it will be based upon what the Lord knows you need and presented to your mind in the context of your life and your future behavior. It will occupy a special place in your consciousness, a place where it can be recalled quickly in the very moment you need it. And it will come to you with the requirement that you act upon it. I hope that you will be open to the specific thoughts the Holy Ghost may put in your mind over the next 20 minutes. My mission president said something to me right before I left the mission field that I didn't fully appreciate at the time. He said to the group of us departing missionaries, you see things more clearly now then you will until midlife well here i am 25 years later at midlife finally understanding what he meant he meant that as missionaries we had been in that special situation where our personal righteousness and our desire to do god's will aligned in a way that is difficult to achieve outside the mission field and thus we had enjoyed the influence and companionship of the Holy Ghost more fully than we would until midlife. And he was right. You come home and pursue your education, you have to worry about your finances, your social life, and then comes your spouse, your children, and your career. It's a struggle to manage all of the priorities and all of the distractions. Missionaries know that the first law of heaven— and of missionary success, is obedience. Righteousness and truth are inseparably connected. And I learned that when I was obedient, when I was trying my best to be righteous, that I had a valid expectation for the companionship of the Holy Ghost. That's the first thing. The second was that I had to explicitly ask for specific guidance. Let me repeat that. Explicitly ask for specific guidance guidance. You have to ask because God is no respecter of persons. He loves all his children and has repeatedly told them, ask and ye shall receive, seek and ye shall find, knock and it shall be opened unto you. Asking is an important part of the law that governs receiving. And not only should we ask, but we should ask for specifics. Like President Monson has said, When we deal in generalities, we rarely have success, but when we deal in specifics, we rarely have a failure. So as a missionary, I learned to pray for very specific things. Then I came home from my mission and life got busy. School and marriage followed quickly and I became very focused on my future. Over time, my prayers gradually slipped back into generalities. Why does that happen? Maybe we think that the details of our lives are too mundane for the Lord, or do we just become lazy? But my thinking changed one day while I was sitting in a mechanical engineering seminar my junior year. I remember it clearly. Carl Sorensen said something to the effect of, You students here at BYU should become the smartest engineers in the world. Not only do you have the best professors, but you have the gift of the Holy Ghost to help you learn truth. That's right. Like Moroni said, all truth. I thought to myself, you mean to tell me that I can pray about calculus, physics, thermodynamics, heat transfer, and fluid mechanics? Yes. All those topics are covered under the all truth clause. So from that time forward I began to be more specific in my prayers. I would pray over individual homework assignments, problems, and principles, and while I don't remember hearing a voice or having some great manifestation, I would often wake up in the morning with more clarity than I had the night before. I learned that when I combined my best efforts with very specific pondering and prayer, things went better, much better, and the truths of some things were manifest to me by the power of the Holy Ghost, I wholeheartedly recommend the practice of being very specific in our personal prayers and avoiding the generalities that so easily turn into vain repetition. A few years ago, I attended a priesthood leadership training session where President Packer was presiding. His topic was revelation, and he had us open the hymn book and read the words to Come Unto Him. I had never sung or read this hymn, but really appreciated the message it contains about the nature of revelation. It reads, I wander through the still of night when solitude is everywhere, alone beneath the starry light, and yet I know that God is there. I kneel upon the grass and pray, and answer comes without a voice. It takes my burden all away and makes my aching heart rejoice. When I am filled with strong desire and ask a boon of Him, I see no miracle of living fire, but what I ask flows into me. And when the tempest rages high, I feel no arm around me thrust, but every storm goes rolling by when I repose in Him my trust. What I understood from President Packer's explanation of this hymn was that even when we feel alone— and we feel no arm around us. The answers do eventually come without a voice. The storms do go rolling by and life's most important lessons are learned. Truth usually distills upon our souls like the morning dew, imperceptibly. The Doctrine and Covenants repeatedly counsels missionaries to open their mouths and spare not and to speak the thoughts that I shall put into your hearts with this promise that it shall be given you in the very moment what you shall say. I believe there's a key to enabling the power of the Holy Ghost here. When we're doing our best to keep the commandments, then our first thoughts and our first impressions are usually the inspired ones. I've observed this phenomenon many times in my life, Here's a typical scenario at my house. Let's call it the parable of the messy basement. After a long day of work, I come home and I find that every friend in the neighborhood has been at my house playing in the basement. The couch pillows are piled all over at the bottom of the stairs to accommodate base jumping from the landing. Every toy in the toy closet is on the floor. The blankets are all over the place. You, you get the picture. Something inside of me softly says... Go join in the fun. Play with the kids. Don't make a big deal about the mess. You can clean it up later." This is the first thought that comes from the heart, from my best self, and is inspired. But then something else kicks in. A second thought, a more natural response. Wait a minute. I've been working all day. I shouldn't have to clean this up. Haven't these kids learned anything? I better teach them a lesson. Where's my wife? Well, I can tell you from personal experience that option number two, in any of its various forms, never works out as initially conceived. Just follow the first impression. It's usually the right one, the one that leads to more Christ-like behavior. King Benjamin called this yielding to the enticings of the Holy Spirit, putting off the natural man and becoming like a child. When we learn to heed the promptings of the Holy Ghost, then these feelings become stronger and more frequent. Joseph Smith said this to John Taylor, Elder Taylor, you have been baptized, you have had hands laid upon your head for the reception of the Holy Ghost, and you have been ordained to the Holy Priesthood. Now, if you will continue to follow the leadings of that Spirit, it will always lead you right— Sometimes it may be contrary to your judgment, never mind that. Follow its dictates. And if you be true to its whisperings, it will in time become in you a principle of revelation so that you will know all things. Alma explained the process of spiritual growth this way. He said, It is given unto many to know the mysteries of God. Nevertheless, they are laid under a strict command that they shall not impart only according to the portion of his word which he doth grant unto the children of men, according to the heed and diligence which they give unto him. And therefore, he that will harden his heart, the same receiveth the lesser portion of the word, and he that will not harden his heart, to him is given the greater portion of the word, until it is given unto him to know the mysteries of God, until he know them in full." Heed and diligence are like the Lord's encryption technology. The mind of the Lord, as revealed and taught by the Holy Ghost, is only revealed to those who are willing to act. This is the sincere heart and real intent that Moroni says are prerequisites to having the truth of the Book of Mormon manifest by the power of the Holy Ghost. As missionaries, we observe that the truths of the gospel are protected or hidden from the insincere or the unprepared. Just saying the words, is the Book of Mormon true, or is Joseph Smith a true prophet, is not enough. Those that are truly not willing to heed heavenly counsel rarely receive it. If the unprepared were not kept from the mysteries, as Alma put it, then they would stand condemned before the Lord, having refused the light offered them. This is the case for sign-seekers, those who want a manifestation, who do not have real intent. The Lord said, Behold, here is the agency of man, and here is the condemnation of man, because that which was from the beginning is plainly manifest unto them, and they receive not the light. And every man whose spirit receiveth not the light is under condemnation. So let's recap just a little. We need to be righteous so that we have a valid claim upon the companionship of the Holy Ghost. We need to ask for specifics in our prayers and ponderings. We need to recognize and then act upon the enticings of the Spirit which are often given as our first impressions in the very moment of need. But there will be other moments throughout our lives where we are left unto ourselves when we may not recognize the promptings of the Spirit. Remember that life Is a probationary state, a time to learn, and a time to become more like the Savior through the exercise of our own agency. There are many circumstances where the Lord leaves it completely up to us. He wants to see if we're learning to act for ourselves, He wants to measure the gap between our will and His will. The Holy Ghost is our guide, not our chauffeur through life. The Lord says that men should be anxiously engaged in a good cause and do many things of their own free will and bring to pass much righteousness for the power is in them wherein they are agents unto themselves. Bruce R. McConkie said this during a BYU devotional years ago. He said, Well, maybe it will be a little shock to you, but never in my life did I ever ask the Lord whom I ought to marry. It never occurred to me to ask him. I went out and found the girl I wanted. She happened to be the prophet's daughter, Amelia Smith. But his point wasn't that we shouldn't counsel with the Lord over life's big decisions, but rather he was emphasizing the important role that our own agency plays. He further said, "And so we're faced with two propositions. One is that we ought to be guided by the spirit of inspiration, The spirit of revelation, the other is that we're here under a direction to use our agency to determine what we ought to do on our own, and we need to strike a fine balance between these two. Thus, life is a complex mixture of circumstance, environment, and agency, but still there are some that blame God or deny his existence because of the suffering and the injustice they see in the world. They lack the proper perspective and understanding of the central role that agency plays in the plan of salvation. My experience has been that the hardest questions in life—questions about cruelty, war, injustice, abuse, disability, and death—all of these tough situations are best understood in the context of man's agency, both individually and collectively. In DNC 58, the Lord says, I command, and men obey not. I revoke, and they receive not the blessing. Then they say in their hearts, This is not the work of the Lord, for his promises are not fulfilled. But woe unto such, for their reward lurketh beneath, and not from above. We believe in God's omniscience that all things are present before him and he sees them all but we do not believe in determinism we believe that the dominant feature of mortality is the agency of man and it drives the show here on earth and in the eternities some truth can only be discovered through trial and hardship and over a long time we have a choice about life's trials We can choose to draw close to the Lord, trust in Him, and learn something of His character and ours, or we can just suffer. I like how Lehi put it to his young son, Jacob. He said, Thou art my firstborn in the days of my tribulation in the wilderness. Nevertheless, Jacob, thou knowest the greatness of God, and He shall consecrate thine afflictions for thy gain. Wherefore, thy soul shall be blessed." I really like that phrase, consecrate thine afflictions for thy gain. It gives me perspective about the purpose of mortality. When I was five years old, my father and his brother were killed in a tragic plane crash in Alberta, Canada, leaving my mother to raise nine children on her own. I remember being told at the time that God had called him on a mission to the spirit world, and that's why his plane crashed. At least that's how I understood it. God caused my dad's plane to crash? While I'm sure the intent behind saying something like that was good, it, it made no sense to me. And I have learned for myself that this is not true. God's foreknowledge of things is not the same as his causing all things to happen. We don't need to ascribe cause to ascribe meaning. Did God cause it? No. No. But was he keenly aware of my family's circumstance? Yes. Was there great meaning in the trial of our lives? Yes. I testify, like Lehi, that all things have been done in the wisdom of him who knoweth all things, which is not the same as causeth all things. Somehow the Lord helped turn the tragedy of my father's death into a blessing to my family. I grew up absolutely knowing that my family was covered by the power of the priesthood and temple covenants. It felt like a current blessing, not a future one to me. I learned many more lessons because I grew up an orphan, all of which I count as great blessings in retrospect. So here we are, living on this earth, working out our salvation. Our challenge is to learn to distinguish between good and evil, between truth and error and to make our choices. Our Father hasn't altogether left us, and we have the right to the companionship of the Holy Ghost to help guide us. Learning to enable the influence of the Holy Ghost is critically important. Speaking of the days that lie in our future, the Lord said, And at that day, when I shall come in my glory, shall the parable be fulfilled which I spake concerning the ten virgins. For they that are wise and have received the truth and have taken the Holy Spirit for their guide and have not been deceived, verily I say unto you, they shall not be hewn down and cast into the fire but shall abide the day. Did you hear that? Those that will abide the day of the Lord's coming will have taken the Holy Spirit to be their guide. But we live in a day when there are many competing sources of information which challenge the relevance of eternal truth. Our society suffers from information glut. We now receive constant feeds of information that are mostly devoid of context and meaning. Information flies at us indiscriminately from myriad sources. This modern truth requires no action on our part except maybe to hit the like button once in a while. The war in Afghanistan, the latest political intrigue, the weather tomorrow, the NBA playoffs, that funny YouTube video, the last post on Facebook, all occupy the same informational strata. Amusing, but no action required. We mostly skip along the surface, rarely diving deep into a matter because the sheer volume of information we're processing dictates that behavior. There just isn't time. And the relevance of the content, as it's usually referred to now, is judged solely by what is most popular or most recent. But real truth has never been judged by those merits. Eternal truth is a view of things as they really are. It's also transactional, meaning that there is an attached responsibility to act upon it, to integrate it. Remember the HD encryption technology the Lord uses? heed and diligence. We cannot hope to have more truth than we have now unless we apply what we already know. Besides information glut, there are other potential challenges to enabling the power of the Holy Ghost that I didn't face 25 years ago. I have a theory about the general shape of the learning curve that I recognized as a college student. It's shaped like an S. Whenever we undertake a task, begin a project or an assignment, There's a certain amount of startup time required to get acclimated, to get moving. Then we eventually get into the zone, where every unit of time we spend yields more output or more new knowledge than was possible during startup mode. In the zone, we dive deep and we become totally immersed in focused thought. The key is to get into the zone quickly and stay there as long as possible. But in today's connected world, we are constantly interrupted by buzzing, beeping and ringing notifications that we assume require our immediate reaction. Hyperattention to digital noise causes us to slide right back down that learning curve, forever stuck in startup mode, in the area of the learning curve where our efforts are the least productive. We're being conditioned to react a certain way to digital stimulus, and this rewiring of our brains is not without consequence. We are developing a form of societal attention deficit disorder. A recent study revealed that the average person checks their phone 150 times per day or every six and a half minutes. Some sociologists are just now beginning to examine the potential consequences of this behavior. In his book, Present Shock, Douglas Rushkoff says, We tend to exist in a distracted present where forces on the periphery are magnified and those immediately before us are ignored. Our ability to create a plan, much less follow through on it, is undermined by our need to be able to improvise our way through any number of external impacts that stand to derail us at any moment. Instead of finding a stable foothold in the here and now, we end up reacting to the ever-present assault of simultaneous impulses and commands. There are many advocates for new technology, and maybe not enough, who are examining the other end of that stick. I am certainly not against technology, far from it. But I am for the deliberate use of technology and careful consideration of all its consequences. And I am worried that the companionship we have with our smartphones is competing with the companionship of the Holy Ghost. This potentially harmful situation is created when we forget that there are things to act and things to be acted upon. We, ourselves, are the things that act. Technology is a thing to be acted upon by us. If we allow that role to become reversed and we find ourselves mostly reacting to our technology, then watch out. We might be holding a rattlesnake by the tail and not even realize the danger. Don't just ingest whatever comes your way via text, email, data feeds, streams, and notifications. Make a conscious choice. You decide what, when, and how you're going to interact digitally. The next time you download an app and it asks you if you want to enable push notifications, really think about what you're agreeing to. Don't get trapped in a compulsion loop that keeps you from the important tasks and people right in front of you. Consider carving out some digital quiet time each day. Sometimes you need to disconnect and be completely alone so that you can commune with God and receive the truth He wants to reveal through the power of the Holy Ghost. Moses understood the importance of climbing the mountain to get away from the din of the herd. In conclusion, I'd like to tell you something that Joseph Smith once said about the gift of the Holy Ghost. He said, I have an old edition of the New Testament in the Latin, Hebrew, German, and Greek languages. I thank God that I have got this old book, but I thank Him more for the gift of the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost is within me and comprehends more than all the world, and I will associate myself with Him. So, we might say in our hearts something similar. I have this smartphone in my pocket, it can do some amazing things, and I'm thankful for it. But I am more impressed by and thankful for the gift of the Holy Ghost. He is smarter than all the world, and I will associate myself with him. May we embrace that association, I pray. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.
0: You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is resisting a distracted state of mind. We've just heard from Ryan Holmes. After the break, we'll return with Amy Peterson Jensen for some hopeful words on media and agency. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is Resisting a Distracted State of Mind. Next is Amy Peterson Jensen, Chair of the BYU Department of Theater and Media Arts at the time of this address, titled Some Hopeful Words on Media and Agency.
2: Much of my research is dedicated to observations of your generation. And I have to admit, you have much to be proud of. A recent column in the New York Times magazine noted that young people today are more averse to risky behavior than their parents were at the same age. Drug and alcohol use, smoking and sexual activity have all been in sharp decline in your demographic during the past twenty years. Also, the financial firm Charles Schwab believes that you are more financially savvy and better savers than your parents. And a study at the Stanford School of Medicine suggests that your willingness to improve society at large may actually improve your eating habits. If these are the inclinations of our culture at large, I certainly believe that these trends would only be amplified among the student body of BYU. All of this might come as a bit of a shock to your parents who have spent so much time and effort getting you to eat your vegetables and shielding you from evil. But it does not come as a shock to me. I watch you. I see you doing good. And I am acutely aware of my responsibility to add to and not detract from the spirit that you carry. While you certainly deserve praise and recognition, you should also recognize that your generation has its own unique characteristics and challenges. For example, it is becoming increasingly more difficult to capture and maintain your attention. I know that many of you are multitasking at this very moment—doing your homework, checking your Facebook accounts, answering emails, texting your friends about your lunch plans, or even shopping. All of these things are available to you here in the Marriott Center through the devices we carry in our pockets. Tools and technologies that are increasingly becoming vital parts of our work, our play, our families, and our very identity. I'm addicted, too. If you would have told me at age 30, just a little while ago, that I would feel completely lost without a cell phone, I would never have believed you. Now my iPhone is almost always within reach. It's likely that my children believe that my most important possession is my MacBook Air that doesn't just rest on my kitchen counter but is usually open and on whenever I'm in the house. If I hear my children cheering from the basement, Go, Mama, go! I know that they're actually not cheering for me, but rather my me on the Wii. I know that there is excellent cell and Wi-Fi service here in the Marriott Center, because on any other Tuesday you would find me answering emails and texting my husband to arrange my own lunch plans. So please understand that my task here today is not to scold or reprimand you for spending so much time on Facebook or for carrying your phone to class, though others might. Rather, I will try to give you some hopeful and helpful words about how our spiritual life might intersect with the world of data and devices that swirls around us. Out of respect for you and in fear of this podium and this occasion, I have sought desperately for the Spirit to guide me to the doctrines I should emphasize and the truths that I should share. In answer to my fervent prayers, the Spirit has guided me again and again to two doctrines that were central to one of the most revered devotionals ever given at BYU—one I have personal experience with. On January 12, 1988, I sat in this very space, in one of the chairs that you are sitting in today. I had just turned twenty. Within the next two years I would be married and would be working in the public schools as a schoolteacher. In that moment, though, I was still preparing for all of that. I was much closer to who you are than to who I am now. I was at the beginning of learning who I was and who I wanted to be in the world. Like you, I was learning that our existence here on earth is difficult, wonderful, terrifying, and beautiful. While I did not know yet that people die young and old. I did not know that who I married would have moment-to-moment impact on who I became. I did not know that babies don't come just because we think they should, even if our begging is sincere. I did know that I was a daughter of our Heavenly Father. I knew that I loved him, and more importantly, that he loved me. I knew that the president of the university at this time was wise and that he loved the students here on campus very much. That is why I was sitting in this space ready to receive personal revelation. That revelation came in the form of a devotional talk delivered by then-university president Jeffrey R. Holland. It was entitled of Souls, Symbols, and Sacraments— and in it he provided profound doctrines in answer to the question of why be morally clean. My comments today should not be viewed in any way as an extension or a commentary on those beautiful words. Elder Holland was quite specific and complete in covering his subject, which needs no elaboration from me, and I encourage all of you to review that talk directly from the perspective and context it was originally given. However, I believe that two doctrines that he spoke of that day— the doctrine of the soul, and the doctrine of the sacrament have profound implications for our mediated interactions with the world. First, the doctrine of the soul. In his devotional address, Elder Holland taught that We must understand the revealed, restored, Latter-day Saint doctrine of the soul and the high and inextricable part the body plays in that doctrine. End quote. In support of that statement, he cited Doctrine and Covenants, section 88, verse 15, which says the spirit and the body are the soul of man. With this in mind, I want to call to your attention the ways that mass communications technologies impact your body and therefore your soul. I also want you to be conscious of the way the world is impacted by your soul and therefore your body. In very real ways, communications technologies allow us to project our bodies or our souls across vast geographies. The very nature of our presence is rapidly changing and expanding. As with all things here in our second estate, there are some spiritual disadvantages of these new abilities that stand in opposition to their obvious rewards. Please know that I am not speaking of theoretical or metaphysical notions. Rather, I am speaking of very practical and actual effects that I know that you and I have experienced. For example, my texting or emailing before and even during the devotional has an effect on my presence here. My iPhone enables me to divide my presence. While I might be seated here, part of my attention, part of my soul, is back at the office, where the concerns of the email I am reading are properly housed. And another part of my soul is in the company of the person that I am texting, inevitably miles away from the location of my ears. Such a disbursement of my soul has prevented me on occasion from participating in the devotional with my complete presence, and I have learned that receiving a message through the Spirit is dependent upon my willingness to listen to that message with my whole soul. We should acknowledge that cell phones and laptops carry no secret powers that will push us towards one side or the other of the war that began in heaven. They are simply tools that amplify the choices we make through our own agency. I know that you regularly hear of the pitfalls and dangers that do exist as part of our mediated culture. But there is opposition in all things, and in opposition to those things that often dominate our discussions of the Internet and all things mediated is an explosion in the availability of all that is virtuous, lovely, and of good report. Agency was the issue in the beginning, and agency—personal, private, moment-to-moment agency—is the issue for you and I today. In Second Nephi chapter 2, verse 26, Lehi explains that because we have been redeemed from the fall, we have become free forever, knowing good from evil, to act for ourselves and not to be acted upon. I take this as a scriptural promise that our agency will never be overwhelmed by technology. Indeed, I believe that our agency has been enhanced by technology, allowing us at every moment to choose the better parts of our world. Lehi goes on in the next verse to state, All things are given us. Clearly that phrase, all things, applies to our world of digital information and Google. All things truly have been given us, good and bad, not just to tempt us on the one hand or to demonstrate our righteousness to ourselves on the other. All things have been given to us, and the act of choosing from among those things or exercising our agency alters the nature of our eternal souls. Each time we choose light and truth and righteousness, we are becoming more like our Heavenly Father, and we develop some of His most important characteristics. We expand our knowledge. We increase our capacities. We grow in our compassion and love for others. We build our testimonies. All of these rewards come because our most important act of agency is when we choose to see things from the perspective of eternity. We choose to see things through the vision of our Heavenly Father— Such vision requires faith to see things as they actually are and not as they appear. Your agency gives you a way to develop this type of vision for yourself, and you can also help others, including those that are most dear to you, develop that vision. The records that we keep can be incredibly powerful in building the faith of ourselves and those that are most important to us, and that faith will help us see into the eternities. When I was a child, President Spencer W. Kimball regularly told members of the Church to keep a journal as a record of our faith that would later benefit our families. When I was about to be married, my BYU stake president gave me some good advice. He told me to take pictures and document my life and my marriage and my family. He explained that this would benefit my children because they would see that my husband and I existed before they were born, that we loved each other, and that important things happened that they didn't necessarily remember. He said that a record of our life through our pictures would give our children a sense of eternity because they would have evidence of good and happy and worthy things beyond their own experience. How are you keeping records of the good and happy and worthy things in your life? We all have the opportunity and the responsibility to be record-keepers. Beyond journals and photographs, we now have at our disposal an immense system of record-keeping and sharing. Our blogs, family videos, Facebook pages, and tweets are all opportunities to inject goodness and testimony and faith into the world. But beyond what you can contribute to the world, you should know that your digital footprint—your record of experiences, testimony, and faith— will actually have the greatest impact on those who are the most important to you—your closest friends and your immediate family. I am so grateful that my sister Anne was a record keeper. She was also a mom, an eighth-grade reading and writing teacher, a laurel advisor, a runner, a photographer, a sharer of recipes, and a blogger. She loved using technologies to improve her life and to reach out to others. Two and a half years ago, this beautiful sister of mine was engaged in a brutal war with metastatic melanoma. Even while she was fighting cancer, she published stories in The Friend and The New Era. She recorded the miraculous experience of her daughter's birth through NPR's StoryCorps program, and she regularly blogged about the everyday occurrences of her life. In every one of these instances, she shared her testimony. She described her existence as blessed, and she identified herself as a daughter of God. On August fifteenth, 2009, she posted this on her blog, which she titles, This Home is Filled with Love and Dreams. She says, I have no doubt that if it is Heavenly Father's will, I will be healed. But even if I am not, I have to admit that I feel at peace. The last month has been fraught with panic and frantic anguish. But now I feel differently. I trust Him. I look forward to asking why all of this had to happen. I'm not going to ask it now, because I know that he can see the whole picture, and I know that whatever his will is, things will be okay. My girls will be okay because they have Ward. I know that Ward will be okay because he has them, and we all have each other forever. And that's what really matters. Seven days later, my sister Ann passed away. Her body is buried on a peaceful hill in Eden, Utah, where she lived with her husband Ward and their three daughters. Most of the time, she feels very far away. But when I read those words from her blog, I feel her presence. And I know her spirit and her body, her fierce and gentle soul, is not lost. Those words have power to bring Anne's presence to me. And more than that, those words have the power to transport a portion of my soul backwards to a time before cancer and loss and forward to a time of resurrection and reunion. Those words, that testimony, helped me to feel eternity. Anne, like me, was also an avid consumer of mediated messages. She read widely. She loved a good movie. However, even before the weight of her mortality began to rest on her, she was consistent in her view that she was participating in a process that had eternal significance. She was insistent that everything she read or watched with her children should teach something good or build something good in herself or her family. Similarly, everything she wrote or shared on the Internet was meant to help someone or demonstrate something decent or testify of something great. Her engagement with the world through technologies of our day was something more than just entertainment or a hobby or an interesting way to pass the time. To her, these were holy activities, purposeful and consecrated actions, sacramental exercises of faith to help her obtain and share the vision of our Heavenly Father. That brings me to a second doctrine that Elder Holland talked about in 1988—the doctrine of a holy sacrament. He says, A sacrament should be any one of a number of gestures or acts or ordinances that unite us with God and His limitless powers. We are imperfect and mortal— He is perfect and mortal, but from time to time, indeed, as often as is possible and appropriate, we find ways and go to places and create circumstances where we can unite symbolically with Him and, in doing so, gain access to His power. Those special moments of union with God are sacramental moments, such as kneeling at a marriage altar or blessing a newborn baby or partaking of the emblems of the Lord's Supper. This latter ordinance is the one we in the Church have come to associate most traditionally with the word sacrament, though it is technically only one of many such moments when we formally take the hand of God and feel His divine power. In a world where all things are delivered to us electronically, a world where light and darkness are divided by a small number of keystrokes or even the click of a mouse, a world where what you see is determined much more by the perceptions of your heart than the function of your eyes. In this world, we must make our use of technology and media a holy sacrament. When we engage with this world through digital devices, we must take every opportunity to formally take the hand of God and feel His divine power as He alters our vision to see things as they really are. Now— When we are discerning from the myriad of messages that swirl around us every day, we must create those sacramental conditions on a moment-to-moment basis. This means that we must not take our souls to places the Spirit cannot follow. We must not find ourselves in circumstances the Holy Ghost cannot abide. We must be watchful of our agency in each moment because it is often the unassuming and unprepared-for moments of our lives that have the biggest consequences— Such a moment came for me when I was 18, and I was participating in the Utah High School State Debate Tournament, and I met my husband for the first time. There are various versions of that day's events, depending upon if you ask my husband or myself. One thing that we do agree on is that there was a note, and we probably only agree on that because I still have it. It is glorious in a 1980s context that I think only people in their 40s can truly understand. This note was our first communication, and it reads, Hello, I think you're beautiful. If you think you're beautiful, say hello, and I will be your slave for life. (laughs) And it's signed, The Man in the Black Suit. Though this note was mysterious and exciting and more than a little bit silly at the time, it has become holy to me in the context of the rest of my life. This was the beginning of my most important relationship. This represents the instant when my family began. This piece of paper was present at the moment that made all the difference in who I am today. Our communication now is far more mundane— And like much of your communications, it comes in bursts of 144 characters or less. Love you is a common message here, as is I'm here. To me, our text messages are just as holy as that first note because they represent consecrated efforts to serve, cheer, and comfort and care for one another. While the first note represented exciting possibilities, these daily missives demonstrate the extraordinary reality of a family that tries—and sometimes succeeds—through faith, covenants, and divine promises to become something greater than who we are as individuals. Our texts are sacramental to me because they are evidence of a partnership between imperfect people. And a perfect deity that is active in our efforts to improve the daily condition of our souls. We facilitate this improvement through conversations, sometimes through text, sometimes through emails, often even in person. The tools of technology that surround us are easily tasked to our benefit and refinement when they facilitate conversations rather than simply transport communications. Conversations, by definition, are interchange a back-and-forth or give-and-take where we listen and respond. The best conversations that we have often become moments of private repentance because conversations are often places where we change our minds, where we find a new path, or where we decide to do better. The changes we make to our souls in these moments are usually small, simple, incremental, comforting, and productive— You can often tell if the media and technologies in your life are having a positive or negative effect on your soul by the quality of media conversations you are having. We should regularly ask ourselves three questions. First, am I having media conversations or am I simply consuming it? As a media scholar, I can tell you that simply consuming media messages is one of the most destructive things we can do to ourselves. The changes that unchallenged consumption have on your soul are also small, simple, and incremental, but they are oriented towards your eventual destruction. Second, what conversations am I having about media with my family and those closest to me? Any media practice that discourages conversations with others or is focused inwardly on your appetites rather outwardly on others will rob you of your faith and prove debilitating to your soul. Third, what am I doing to improve the conversations around me when I use media to communicate? Remember, you can find ways and you can go places and create circumstances where you can unite symbolically with your Heavenly Father. And in doing so, you can gain moment-to-moment access to His power. As I said before, I know that you are good. Your potential for greatness and beauty and everything exciting and happy and wonderful— It's palpable to me and almost overwhelming sometimes. However, I also know that many of you now and all of you eventually will come to a place of trial and desperation. That is the moment when I hope your faith is sufficient for you to ask for your own miracle. When I had been married for ten years, I reached the shores of my own personal Red Sea. My thwarted desire to become a mother had slowly turned my gaze inward and changed my vision until I began to see only bitter disappointment. Wanting a family is certainly not an inappropriate desire, but the focus of my wanting was inward on what I was lacking and what I believed heaven was denying me. My frustration began to have a tremendous impact on my faith. I was no longer in a position to receive answers to my prayers because my gaze was locked on my discontent and my struggle to push it further and further inside my broken heart. Feeling cut off from God, my prayers became mechanical, as I feared even asking for what I wanted most. I know that soul-searching is usually the prescription that we receive in such circumstances, but I had searched my soul, and I had found no solutions. However. A gentle bit of family inspiration led my husband and I to change our gaze and seek the vision of the Lord. We resolved to look outward to the souls of those around us. We threw ourselves into our Church callings, reasoning that if we were faithful in our responsibilities, we could at least feel comfortable as we approached the throne of God and asked for a miracle. That is where I learned that the primary way that our Heavenly Father delivers miracles is through the souls of other beings— and we have a familiar term for those beings. We call them angels. In this circumstance, my angel's name was Julia Matson. and it turns out that the answers to my prayers weren't found through soul-searching but through visiting teaching. Julia was a medical student at the University of Illinois and my visiting teaching companion. Her inspired questioning, patient listening, and knowledge of medical practices in and insurance companies' peculiarities opened the door to precisely the miracle I had been seeking. Because of Julia Matson, and the right doctors were found, the proper measures were taken, and my whispered prayers were answered. Our twin daughters were born the following year, at the end of my first semester here as a professor at BYU. They were two months early. They were in the neonatal intensive care unit. They were in heavily monitored incubators. They were fighting to breathe and even to live. Our loved ones were deeply concerned for us and for them. But my husband and I were happy, even fearless, in the face of these challenges. We had experienced our own personal parting of the Red Sea. We knew that we had entered our own promised land. Your promised lands await you, but it requires faith to get there, and that faith must be developed through your everyday practices— in your everyday world. That world of yours is filled with mountains of information and floods of messages that vie for your own attention and present unprecedented challenges, but really it's still just a matter of agency, just as it always has been, and I have faith in you. Choose to be a record keeper. It will build your faith and the faith of those around you. Choose to engage in active media conversations and avoid passive media consumption. Choose to consecrate your everyday, your thoughts, your communications, and your actions. Choose to look outward in service to others for answers to your own prayers. Choose to find ways and go places and create circumstances where you can unite symbolically with our Father and gain access to his power to help you navigate through the choices and challenges of your generation. For this is life eternal, that you, in your world, with the tools of your day and the practices of your everyday life, that you will come to know the true and living God and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. Of this I testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
0: You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was resisting a distracted state of mind with thoughts from Ryan Holmes and Amy Peterson Jensen. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org findingcenter.